and welcome to episode three of All Against All. I'm Don Rhodes, uh, recording from the Upper West Side of Manhattan in New York, and I'm joined by Ben Moody. Hi. We, uh, we apologize for the uh, delay in this episode, but uh, we both had a bit of work on. Yeah, so, that, was, that, was, yeah. no, that was entirely my fault. Um, uh, oh, I had to... Um, had to pay my dues um, yeah. to society and engage in a bit of the kind of pointless graft that um, keeps corporate Australia ticking over. But, yeah. um, you know, all, all sorted. We've successfully achieved nothing for another year. And, uh, you know, I can get back to the main game. Exactly. But that being, of course, all against all. Um. Yeah, podcasting. <laughs> Um, so this, um, this week we sort of want to talk about Scott Morrison's wanting to ban certain forms of protest in Australia. It seems to be mostly framed around the Extinction Rebellion stuff and mm-hmm. targeting particular companies. I don't know. It, it's it, uh, all, all come from this uh, speech that he gave at a resource council, um, at the Queensland Resources Council, um, in, in which he basically said that uh, this is some form of uh, thought uh, of, uh, you know, of progressives wanting to tell Australians what they can think. What else did he say? Uh, progressivism allows no compromise and they're, they're targeting, uh, here, uh, they are targeting businesses of all size, including small businesses, uh, like, um, like contracting businesses in regional Queensland. Let me assure you, this is not something my government intends to allow to go unchecked. Oh, thank God. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty bad, just in general. Um, I don't know if he referred to this in his speech explicitly, but obviously this has been coupled with the protests that have been going or that were going on in Melbourne around... Um, mm. Oh, no, he does reference it. Um, yeah around the uh, conference, mining conference there. And um, so there was quite a lot of police violence. Um, a few, I think 20 activists were hospitalised um, as a result of oh, being sure. beaten by police, pepper sprayed, um, in one case trampled by a horse. Um, very, mm. you know, very violent scenes. One of the police officers was seen like have it with a sticker over his body cam that said EAD hippies, as in eat a dick hippies. Uh, oh, right. Another one was seen making the, like the, o, the OK sign, the white power OK oh, yeah. sign. I mean, we can assume that, it, you know, it's, um, it was intended in its modern usage, its meme usage, as opposed to its original in this case. Um yeah. So yeah, did, this stuff is really heating up here, and it's it's. I mean, as we discussed last time, I mean, the government is really, you know, they're really feeling their oats on this stuff. Um, and obviously, the conservative elements or the in the police force um, feel that they're going to be protected by these people that they're aligned with the, the mood of the day. Yeah. Well, I did say that those two cops, I think, got fired. So. I think something in this article from The Guardian that you've linked um, on his speech that I think is really interesting is that they do flag, and I think this is kind of goes to what you wanted to talk about today, mm. which I think is something we've talked about a lot before that I think is really interesting, um, mm. is that 
you know, I, I'm this narrative around secondary boycotts has been, yeah. I feel like has been going on forever. I mean, this is yeah. an issue under Abbott. I'm certain. I, yeah. I, I, I can't cite this off the top of my head, but I'm, I'm, I feel certain this was an issue under Howard as well. Yeah. The secondary boycott thing, and this it seems to be a particular kind of cause of concern for conservatives for it, well, all the time. I mean, this is not this is not a recent thing, right? There's more continuity no. than change here. Absolutely, um, and that like uh, the I, the specific bits I can like it, it sort of it tends to be wrapped up as well in this concept of lawfare, um, in uh, in which. Um, under under the Abbott government, they attempted to ban environmental groups, basically from being able to bring uh, actions in court um, against groups like Adani. It's a constant within the conservative movement um, that they're they're like it's it's just it's always just trying to protect the um, the resource extraction industry, um, and, and uh, it's you know that's mainly what they serve. Um, and so yeah, it has it has been going on for a very long time. Um, the, the, the thing I want to talk about in relation to it and is that this, uh, I haven't seen that many op-eds that, uh, that have used this language, but, um, David Crow in the Sydney Morning Herald references this language that you see occasionally when you, when, uh, when people talk about the Liberal Party, which he says, um, Blah, blah, blah. Uh, Scott Morrison is yet to prove uh, he can act um, on this tough uh, talk when his own side of politics is supposed to stand for individual liberty. Um, so, uh, so, sorry, can I just intervene quickly? Because you, yeah. you said you don't see that often. I mean, I just want to say, I think this goes back to something that we were discussing on the last pod about mm. how, um, about knowing what their real motivations yeah. are right and and it amazes me because it's not it's not irregular i mean i i see it, still see it all the time when i can bear my um watching um abc 24 here um but this every time a coalition government um spends a huge amount of money goes into debt sets up a big government kind kind of program or does anything mm. to curtail individual freedoms the media turn around and say, oh, wow, is it the party of Menzies anymore? And it is yeah. just this, it's, it's incredible that these morons can continue, continue to play this narrative out time after time. I mean, some of these people, how long have they been? I mean, Barry Cassidy, I, I think, you know, what, I've seen him come out with it on more than one occasion. Like, yeah. I mean, how, um, Patricia Cavallis, obviously. I mean, yeah. how, how long do these people have to see this happen for before they go, oh, you know what? Maybe, maybe this imagined past or yeah. this, this kind of underlying <laughs> tendency is just something that I'm imagining. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is this sort of like general thing about like, oh, how can you call yourself the Liberal Party and, you know, and yet you're attacking the right to protest? I won't go through every example of this because it would take too long. But like if we just go like we could just very quickly go through the fact that, you know, all of the all of the uh, all of the terrorism laws that we passed that are that are huge restrictions on on individual liberty, huge uh, huge powers for the for the state and for the police uh, were passed either under the Liberal Party or with the support of the Liberal Party. Mm. Um, Abbott Abbott has spent you know a huge amount of time basically trying to ensure that women can't do can't do what they like with their bodies. It's it's like it's it, Obviously, like we, we see these um, 
all the time. But we also see that same reaction from the media that is, mm. how can it steal the parties of Menzies? Uh, you know, how can it be a Liberal Party and do this? And this is something that I want to talk about and undermine that actually, this is 100% not only did the DNA, but the foundation of the Liberal Party. So this episode, we're sort oh, of basically yeah. talking about the, 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 the origins of the Liberal Party and where, uh, where it came from and why it, why sort of saying, saying that it, you know, like buying into the idea that it has the name Liberal Party and therefore must have some sort of, must have some sort of smaller liberal philosophy behind it is, is just like, is just being played for a complete dope. There's, the, the, this party has never, ever, ever been anything other than a like conservative reactionary party that party that it, like really has only ever had one uh, ha- only ever had one goal, which is anti-organized labor. So the 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 the, the case I want oh, to you know sort what of, they say: pick one thing and do it well. Yeah, <laughs> and God, they have. You know, like yeah, they fucking nailed it. Good on them. You know, like, <laughs> we love to see it. <laughs> From that perspective, they've done extremely well. Um, the the um the language that Morrison used is actually like uh, in reference to you know this. Is, he talks about that it's you know that it's the protesters that are the ones who are actually you know attacking uh, the rights of Australians. You know, it's them who are you know trying to te- like telling us what we can think and and how we can behave and that kind of thing. And he sort of invokes this like. This idea of like progressivism as totalitarianism, and it is mm. uh, like it is the same language. When ro- like Robert Menzies uh, att- attempted, well, attempted to ban the Communist Party in Australia in the nineteen fifties, um, and he basically used the same the same uh, like the same argument. He basically said that uh, when when he was introducing the bill, he said. Are we to treat these deliberate frustrations of national recovery, of economic stability, and proper defensive preparations as a mere exercise of normal civil rights? And at any rate, what is liberty? Liberty is not an abstraction. Um, and then goes on to talk about how communists are going to essentially destroy business. <laughs> um, we all know that the thing that, that the greatest threat to liberty comes from those with no control whatsoever over the mechanisms of state. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Always Environmentalists, to... the Communist Party, um, <laughs> you know, Twitter. Yeah. Uh... But, but if we go, like, if we go back to, um, to like, where the Liberal Party comes from, which is literally only a few years before the Communist Party case and the, the, and the Communist Party situation, um, the Liberal Party originally started from... Um, the remnants of what was um, the United Australia Party, which was a um, a merger of a series of nationalist parties and the Commonwealth Liberal Party, which itself was a merger of the Protectionist Party and the Free Trade Party, which only all of which what? only merged because yeah 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 the um so what was can so, I, so, so what was the logic behind that exactly um, the your, merger your, of the Protectionist it, it, and the Free Trade Parties. Yes. So, um, so back uh, to go right back to um, when Australia federated in um, 1901, the two major parties were the Free Trade Party and the Protectionist Party. That lasted for exactly one election. Um, the, at the next election, the Labor Party 
swept in uh, and and became um, and, and basically got itself to a position where it was um, the largest party. Um, so very quickly, uh, like uh, not not um, not immediately after that election, but it was a couple of elections later. Um, these two parties that literally have the opposite names and apparently have completely separate philosophies about about things merged because they what they really cared about was being anti-labor. They they could they could get together on these on uh, on protectionism and free trade, uh, even if they had disagreed slightly about it because they really 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 just didn't want workers to actually be in charge of anything. Um, incredible. Okay, yeah, yeah. and so then yeah. they so, merged so they with all these other the parties. Liberal Party, which then became one of the parties that was uh, under the United Australia Party, along with a whole bunch of nationalists. Um, and when that finally collapsed um, in during World War Two, um, uh, Robert Menzies, who was who was a prime minister uh, under the United Australia Party, uh, came together to form um, what he named the Liberal Party. Um, and this is uh, so just right from the start, you can sort of see that there's actually nothing particularly liberal about the people who are forming these part these parties. They're they're mostly nationalists. They're mostly people who are on who've been anti-labor. Uh, they're um, yeah. They're, there's there's protectionists. Like nothing, yeah, yeah. There's nothing about them that's particularly yeah that like it particularly holds um, you know small holds you know the rights of the individual. Well, all individuals as you know being particularly important. Um, and what, but he chose the name Liberal Party, I think, and I, like, I really do think in some ways Menzies was a bit of a political genius. I mean, he, he was in power. He was, the, you know, in power for like 29 years. Um, he, mm. uh, he adopted the term liberal and, I, and, uh, and he, when he spoke of the, the Liberal Party's liberalism, he basically says, um, as the uh, etymology, uh, etymology of our name um, uh, liberal indicates, we have stood for freedom. We took the name liberal because we determined uh, we, we were determined to be a progressive party, willing to take experiments in no sense reactionary, but believing in the individual, his right and his enterprise and rejecting the socialist panacea. So sort of just within that passage, you can kind of actually see that like it, it kind of contradicts itself a bit. Because mm. um, they, they are, they say, he says that it want, that we're in no sense reactionary. But again, when you look at the history and when you look at the thing, they're actually explicitly reacting against socialism. And yeah, uh, absolutely. Socialism. I mean, and yeah, to your point, I mean, the, the money shot is in that, that last clause, right? Rejecting yeah. the socialist panacea. Yeah. And so... Um, uh, but he, but he was like, like actually, you know, pretty good at this. Like, and he, um, and he was able to convince people. Uh, uh, I mean, he won the first election on, um, on basically ending rationing um, uh, after World War Two, uh, which, like, I mean, you can sort of see how that would be an appealing to people. Um, and they came into government in 1949. Uh, basically, the first. Things they did were to uh, to make sure they um, undid or uh, undid any last vestige of uh, Chifley's attempts to nationalise the banks, mm -hmm. um, 
And uh, then they started um, they started jumping on the bandwagon for the Korean War and ginning up um, and ginning up anti uh, anti communist um, uh, sentiment in Australia, which mm-hmm. leads us to um, to uh, the Communist Party case. So basically, in the nineteen fifties, uh, in in nineteen fifty, uh, Menzies uh, par- actually passed a bill. That uh, that banned the Australian Communist Party, um, and and you sort of I, I read out that rhetoric before, like uh, that you know he talks about that that these people are going to you know frustrate our national recovery, economic stability, and um, and you know that that we in order to protect liberty, we have to we have to uh, ban this group. And ban anyone in the group from ever holding public office, which was a, a huge part of the bill. Um, it got struck down in court, um, and he then attempted to uh, he then attempted to uh, have a referendum to ban the Communist Party, um, which was which was only very narrowly defeated. Um, and uh, he, he actually even talked during that that there were all these uh, people who came up and heckled. The, the yes to banning the Communist Party um, uh, speakers at, at campaign events, and he thought that that was good actually because it showed that the that those who were on the no, let's not ban the Communist Party side, didn't respect proper democratic norms, morals, and manners. Um, uh, the norms, <laughs> the old norms. Yeah, but I, but I think I just think it's it's a. I think there's a lot here that is really quite similar to how Scott Morrison thinks and talks when he talks about Extinction Rebellion um, and and people who are targeted and climate protesters who are targeting other other businesses. It, it, like he, it, Menzies could bring up a better case, a bigger case, because there was the Korean War going on. You know, China, like uh, China had literally just fallen and become the People's Republic of China. Um, you know, there was uh, there was a really big coal strike in Australia. There was, you know, um, you know, I think I think there was a, a lot more ground that he could use to actually gin up this feeling. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, of- all across the- all around the world, the people like him were terrified at the time. I mean, I think now That's- we don't we almost don't kind of realise how right from 1918 onward, how kind of present, real, and present the threat seem to be to them that they might wake up one day and have everything taken away from them. Yeah, yeah. And, um, but, but a bit like I, you could, I, I feel like you can sort of see the echo of this, of, of that in the way Scott Morrison talks about, um, about climate protesters. Like, he, you know, he's, it, it's like, it's really over the top, like, uh, you know, what, like, um, what he says, like, uh, where, where were the lines? Um, he claimed he claimed that progressivism, which he labelled a new a new speak type term invoking George Orwell, <laughs> um, intends to get under the radar, but at its heart would deny the liberties of Australians. Apocalyptic <laughs> in tone, it brooks no compromise. It's all or nothing. Alternative views are not permitted. Do you think There's... this stuff makes an impact on people? Do you, I mean, what's your read on how this has been received? I mean, I know you're not here, but you know, we're probably about as integrated into the culture as each other. I don't know. Um, I do tend to think it. I think it's like people. I, I don't think people particularly love Extinction Rebellion um, as a 
like broadly, but I don't think people, I don't know. I, I don't, I don't know how, how, how deeply it's uh, seeped into the consciousness, but I don't feel like people care that much that, mm. uh, that people are protesting. I think most people really do actually understand that, you know, things are really bad and they do. And uh, you know, that they do need to change. Well, I wonder um, so, if the risk is not that the public maybe absorbs it, but rather that we get the same phenomenon that we got um, under Menzies in that the people who absorb it are the Labor Party. Um, yes. Who then yeah. uh, then try to pivot to the right to prove that they're not communists or subversives, um, which, which you know, back a, then led to Tiffley breaking up the miners' strike. Yep, and, uh, and, uh, and also led to the, the split in the Labor Party that kept... Labour out of power for again another twenty nine years. Um, there's, Love to see. Yeah, it. I, I, yeah. I think there. I, I no. I do think there's actually a, a real risk of that. And I think you know. I mean, we've spoken about Albo being a bit weak willed mm. when it comes to this stuff. Um, but um, I, look, I don't know how much impact it has. Um, uh, Morrison's, you know, speaking like this. I. I I do think there's a I think there's a really large portion of Australia that agrees with him, but I just mm. don't know if I don't know if it's a if it's a persuadable part of Australia. <laughs> um, mm. I don't know. It's I yeah. I I don't think I have a good sense of that. What what, what do you think? Um, I'm I'm honestly not sure. I mean, I think you know the last after the last round of elections. I mean, my inclination is to think that you know. I think we've talked about this before, the cultural hegemony is so powerful here and the material circumstances are not yet bad enough um, to sort of create any cracks in that. Um, mm. And I think, which I think the generational kind of gap doesn't particularly help. Um, and I think, um, you know, the, the Australian people have time and time again shown that they love this shit. Um, yeah. They love like the spectacle of punishment, of um, uh, mean, tight-lipped kind of petty authoritarianism. Um, yeah. you know, they they love, you know, it's an electorate that seems to, for whatever reason, love the um, the idea of being able to identify and punish outsiders and deviants. Um, so yeah. I mean, I'm sure they'll fucking lap it up. Yeah, um, that's, that's a pretty. That's, that's probably right. Um, and it. Um, yeah. And it. I think you know we're talking about this kind of continuity. I mean, uh, you know the. And the, the sort of like the enduring. Reality that you know the Liberal Party, and I think this goes for all conservative and all sort of business parties around the world. That it doesn't have an underlying ideology so much as it has a collection of invested interests who are trying to maintain a status quo material and power distribution. Um, yeah. You know, I think, and so, I mean, I, I did a bit of work a few, quite a while ago now on conservatism. I mean, I wrote my honest thesis on it. And I, um, you know, I think we talk a lot about conservatism in our society as if it is a legitimate political ideology, as if you yeah. can sit down and you can say, okay, We've got this question about what does the good society look like and how do we 
build and maintain that good society such to contribute to the greatest possible human flourishing. Yeah. Um, and then, then we sort of say in our popular discourse, well, there's a few different kind of schools of thought on this. So there's socialism and communism and the sort of variants thereof. Mm. Um, there's, and then there is um, libertarianism yeah. and variants thereof. And then there's kind of the like different liberalism, religious... Well, yeah, I'd put those yeah, closer to libertarianism. And then there's sort of different yeah. religious um, models, essentially. Mm. Um, and so they say, well, you know, the path to the, group, the good society and human flourishing is... Um, either, you know, collective ownership of the means of production, a society structured, you know, in line with, um, aligned with uh, biblical wisdom, whatever it might be. And we sort of go, I think we use that framework to then look at conservatism and we sort of go, oh, okay, well, conservatism must also have a proposition like this, right? Mm. And I think it's honestly one of the greatest lies that the pricks have ever got away with. And you see people yeah. like, um, what's that guy I hate? Tim Wilson. Um, yeah, you know, I, self... I, wanted, I wanted to talk about his, his silence at some point. I'll, I'll bring it up later. Uh, but, yeah. So you um, see but... the, these self-styled supposed in conservative intellectuals, right? And, I mean, these are by and large like fairly illiterate people as far as I can tell. And so you see these people kind of, they adopt these affectations around conservative intellectualism that create this impression that conservatism is this body of thought that provides an alternative kind of set of prescriptions or model for understanding the world to that provided by libertarianism or communism or religion. Mm. Um, yeah. And this, this is fundamentally untrue, right? And, and so and the only, the only intellectual that they can ever quote, that they can ever cite, is Edmund Burke. And, I mean, I think, you know, they, they all love Edmund Burke, Tim Wilson included, and I think Edmund Burke is, is um, essentially a kind of, you know, verbose dim-witted hack um yeah. and i think you know he he's his influence has endured precisely because he his work has always been a useful tool for these kinds of people um and mm. so when you take this sort of when you take this idea of burkean conservatism they talk about and you get into his his work and you say what is it that actually unites these people what is their kind of underlying worldview you sort of realize that conservatism is not an ideology in the sense that it provides a set of prescriptions. It's actually um, an epistemology that is a reaction to ideology. So it comes out of the French Revolution and the Enlightenment, where Burke, um, writing in his Reflections on the Revolution in France, was watching the kind of the French Revolution go down and mm. said his argument was essentially that these people want to apply human reason to constructing the good society. But no single human being can possibly have all of the knowledge and all of the information that that requires, right? The scope of the problem is simply too great for human reason. Therefore, we have to assume that the world that we've inherited and the way things are now has some merit to it, has some inherent value to it because it represents the accumulated wisdom of all of those that came before us. The problem with this, of course, is that um, that's all well and good, but what it does is it shifts the source of truth in inquiry from reason and observation of the external world to whatever someone higher than you in the 
hierarchy or older than you says to yeah. you, right? Yeah. Um, and so it's inherently biased toward the status quo and toward the existing power structure. You can see in his work the absolute fetishization of power. And so there's yeah. this great quote that conservatives actually, I've seen conservatives trot this out unironically, right? So this mm. is a quote about Marie Antoinette. It is now 16 or 17 years since I saw the Queen of France, then the Dauphiness at Versailles. I don't know if I pronounced that right, Dauphiness anyway. And, oh, yeah. Sure, yeah. and surely never lighted on this orb, which she hardly seemed to touch a more delightful vision. I saw her just above the horizon, decorating and cheering the elevated sphere, he's talking about the world, she just began to move mm. in, glittering like the morning star, full of life and splendor and joy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. It's, oh, here we go. And then here, here it gets, gets... You know what this reminds me of? Um, this is uh, Menzies. Sorry, I have to bring this up now. Menzies, when the Queen came out um, in, like, the 1950s, um, he... he like quoted this poem that like apparently just made the entire like even the entire room of like sycophants he was uh in cringe where he said although i did but see her passing by i shall love her till i die oh my and, god did he write it himself yeah. no 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 it's an actual <laughs> poem by like one of these other like like modicus freaks so uh, this is so there's a great so this continues right this like this hmm. simpering um yeah. and then he says the age of chivalry is gone. That of sophisters, economists, and calculators has succeeded, and the glory of Europe is extinguished forever. Never, never shall, more shall we behold that generous loyalty to rank and sex, that proud submission, that dignified obedience, that subordination of the heart, which kept alive, even in servitude itself, the spirit of an exalted freedom. The unbought grace of life, the cheap defence of nations, the nurse of manly sentiment and heroic enterprise is gone. It is gone, that sensibility of principle, that charity of honour, which felt a stain like a wound, which inspired courage whilst it mitigated ferocity, which ennobled whatever it touched and under which vice itself lost half its evil by losing all its grossness. But, so, I mean, this is, in this is, so essentially what he's can, saying. Can I, can I just ask, like, like, what, like, what would a conservative say when he says, like, what freedom exactly, what exalted spirit of freedom are we losing from this? Well, I mean, the, like, this I, guy don't, was... I don't even understand. Well, this guy was Sorry. a member of parliament, right, who gr um, grifted his whole life and was in parliament essentially to keep out of debtor's prison, earned a public salary his whole life and was That's essentially this, this sort of absolute um, simpering dipshit. So, I mean, he had all of the freedom in the world, right? Like he was yeah. just like the people who populate conservative parties now. He was um, the epitome of mediocrity um, mm. in an exalted position purely because of his the place in the social hierarchy that he was born into. And so, of course, well, he doesn't want anyone to investigate that too deeply. And like all conservatives, rather than looking at looking rationally at the material situation underlying the society, he turns instead to the aesthetics and yeah. the morals and the manners and the norms and makes that this object of fetishization that somehow justifies the maintenance of this structure rather than the application of human reason. Um, and so, I mean, I think this, I think that what, what you get from Burke is this, the two points that, one, there's never been a conservative philosophy. It has always been an epistemology that attempts to, that is essentially a counter-enlightenment epistemology that attempts to react against 
the increasing influence of empiricism um, in the world in general and on politics um, and maintain yeah. and support the maintenance of existing power structures. And that has never changed. I mean, it just moved from being a reaction against the French Revolution to being a reaction against the Russian Revolution. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. All the way, I mean, you can trace this unbroken chain of essentially the the, the sycophantic self-interest of mediocre people born into power all the way from Burke through Menzies to Tim Wilson. Yeah, uh, and, and like and the, the rhetoric, the same rhetoric that Morrison uses now uh, at where, you know, where, you know, where previously... Uh, like the Australian Communist Party was never very big. Let's just like let's just like know that to start with. Um, where like Menzies points to this diabolical threat to uh to the Australian way of life from you know this this set of deviants, and Morrison points to it from a different set of deviants, and just and and basically in a in a I don't like using the term Orwellian, but uh, in a in a sort of like up is down kind of way says in order to protect freedom we must destroy freedom uh, we must destroy uh we must we must uh, abolish these people's civil rights in order to protect our own rights it's like it's, it's like classic video game type logic isn't it yeah in order to save the world sphere we must destroy the world sphere master yeah. chief yeah <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing sir Finishing this fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but what amazes uh, me about this is, like, these people but, must never have read a fucking book in their lives. Like, or if they have, no, no, it's no, no, only no. one book. But, like, yeah, that they, like, I saw, like, uh, yes, it is. It, it, like, it's, like, it's a, it's a Sparks Notes version of, of Edmund Burke um, and, like, fucking John McCain's, like, biography. That's it. Like, it's, the, like, and, like... Uh, I do want to bring up Tim Wilson again here because, like, this man was literally had the title, it was appointed by Abbott to the Human Rights Commission where he had the title of Freedom Commissioner. Like, mm. like and uh, have we heard anything from this guy about, about no, his government's no, current but... plan to, uh, to, to, to stop people protesting? To, you know, about maybe people's freedom to to decide what products they want to buy and uh, what they want. No, of course fucking not. No, but when did we and, last and hear from him? should we expect it. But Sorry? when did we last hear from him? When did we last hear from him? Franking uh, credits. Have, yeah. Which goes, again, about... yeah, to, to what underlies this whole thing. All of this shit about the values, the freedom, the manners, the morals is fucking garbage. The rubber hits the road for these vapid, craven morons when there's money on the table. And, I mean, for them, it's not even a lot of money because they're not the people with the money. They're just the handmaidens of the people with the money, you know, like. Yeah. And, like, and I think, like, if you, and this is, like, the, to, to bring this, like, to the, the core of the Liberal Party and what it is, every time, so, like, every time you see written or someone speak about the idea that the Liberal Party is in any way, shape or form a, a small l liberal party immediately write that person off as having like literally fucking no understanding of of history or of, mm. of what the party is actually about that like there has only ever been one purpose to the liberal party and uh, like uh, you know we, 
shown it through the uh, through their history of how they were founded and literally the people that founded it at like the ideology and and also just literally what they've done and that the only ideology that the only thing they've ever really done is to be anti-organized anti-organized labor anti-socialist anti-communist and anti-labor that's it like the, like everything like all that stuff about him saying like the epistemology of of you know liberal indicates that we stood for freedom and we're a progressive party like can they not understand this was a fucking politician like putting in political rhetoric to try and convince people of something he was saying it at the time to like to um to persuade people there's that actually just reminds me of that time that um you were showing me on twitter that tim wilson got into a fight with this some guy about menzies mm. um and it was on exactly I this about i think that. tim wilson was like i think he was saying something like he used this quote he used exactly this quote yeah, and then some guy, someone, I forget who, but some hero came back and was like... It was, uh, that was one of the conservatives, the reactionaries, who was just like, no, mate, we've, we're fascists. We've always been fascists. Yes, that's right. It was another, yeah, it was another right-winger who came back and was like, no, Tim, you've got it wrong. We're not about that shit. We're about, you know, even Menzies was about fucking just, you know, shooting the degenerates. And yep. um, then they have they just had this stupid argument about them, and the guy like the hard right winger was completely right. He was posting all of these quotes, and yeah. Tim Wilson had nothing to say. It was fucking of hilarious. Not, of course, and this and like and so like it, it, like it, it, you're you're right when you say like where the rubber hits the road. These people like are just about money because uh, and are just about keeping the existing order because again. <laughs> We haven't heard anything from Tim Wilson and we won't hear anything from Tim Wilson and nor should we expect to hear anything from Tim Wilson. And furthermore, every time he brings up his bullshit about, you know, about individual rights and freedoms, the only thing we should do is like pat him on his tiny little head. Like there's nothing, there's, there's, like, it, it, it's always been, it's always been bullshit and we should always treat it as bullshit. It's mm. like, so yeah. The, the history of like this, uh, this latest move by Morrison trying to ban protests is one hundred and ten percent within the the uh, the the ideology, the DNA, the the roots of the Liberal Party. It's exactly what they are about, and we should we should just start talking about them that way. Yeah, I'm yeah, could not agree more. Yeah. So uh, and you know I, I like I brought up some examples from the past. I mean, yeah, terrorism laws. You know, the um, uh, anything to do with uh, with women's reproductive rights, anything to do with gay rights. Um, it's you know, it's never like it's it, it, it's so obvious that it's sort of not worth. It's it's almost like it, it almost feels like you know, it almost feels too obvious to talk about. But the only people who seem to give it any actual credence are op-ed writers like mm. and members of the party themselves i think this actually kind of in a weird way this actually relates to something else that i wanted to talk about the global rise in family offices so okay. i i first i only recently found out about this right but i i saw an article in the financial times they have produced their apparently annual family office wealth report um, which is sort of a special edition that they do every year to mm. um, speak to the interests of their readership who have family offices. So, so, so family... Uh, can, you, um, can you quickly uh, 
So family office, when you so say that, what exactly do you mean? Family office is a um, essentially an investment firm set up to manage a fa- uh, one family's money. So there are multi-family right. offices as well. So you might have a couple of families go in and manage, have one, um, yep. but it's essentially a private investment firm. So instead of going okay. and putting your money in with a bank or a hedge fund or whatever and having them, one of their advisors invest it for you, you literally hire your own staff to do that. And then they right. go around and find in private investment deals or manage your public investments, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, so I mean, this kind of, obviously this is, you know, this is for the ultra wealthy. Um, <laughs> the things that I've read say that, you know, essentially it costs about a million, you know, about a minimum of a million dollars a year to run one of these. So, um, yeah, We're talking apparently, a lot apparently was popularized initially by Carnegie um, in the US. Um, so oh, as, as many good things were. <laughs> yeah. So then I started digging a bit deeper on this, right? And I got to the UBS Global Family Office Report 2019. Um, now, so there's about, it's hard to get a lot of good data on these these things because obviously they're quite private. Yeah. But we're seeing this really interesting picture, right? So there's about 10,000 of these in the world now, or so as of 2016, um, that was EY's estimate. So let's assume there's a bit more now. Yeah. 68% of that 10,000 were founded after the year 2000, and more than 50% were founded after 2008. Ooh. That's the, interesting. You know, the enormous financial crisis. Yeah. Average, the average assets under management for these is $917 million, and average family wealth is $1.2 billion. Now, all That's... told... That means that yeah. these things account for, at a conservative estimate, because bear in mind you've got to put margins in this data, so, so the aggregate assets under management for these things is estimated to be between 6 and $8 trillion. So at the absolute low end of that spectrum, that means that these things account for almost 7% of global GDP that and is up to 10%. Nuts. So, and I mean, you, you do a quick Google on this, right? And the whole, the, you know, this, this is really big deal in the industry, like in the financial services industry. Yeah. This is a really, inter- considered a quite, a, a really, you know, a really interesting phenomenon, the rise of these things. Yeah. Um, seven, of, seven out of 10 firms reported increasing family wealth over the past year. So they're getting average returns of around five to six and a half percent. Yeah. Um, 50% of them said that they invested in improving their governance and reporting structures last year. So they're becoming more and more sophisticated. Um, yeah. And interesting, so I think, I think that in and of itself, right, is um, a somewhat horrific picture. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it's just yet another symptom of the increasing inequality that we've seen since the 1970s, that there is now such an enormous... This is now such an enormous and growing phenomenon that so much of the world's GDP can be taken up purely through these offices. And bear in mind that this isn't actually all of the wealth or capital that these people control. This is their, yeah. these are their personal investments. Yeah. You know, this, um, this doesn't speak to the corporate assets under their control in their roles as a CEO or whatever. Um, and some of their money then is with external advisors as well. So this is actually only a slice of the, the assets these people control. But this is, the, this is the slice, essentially, that, that is for them in the bunker, right? 
Yeah. And, so, and so, so, sorry. Uh, is this how we should look at that? Like these are these are the bunkers that are. Well, that... well, I'm I'm getting to this. So yeah. the Financial Times reported, and they don't have great figures on this, but they reported mm -hmm. following UBS that only 18% of firms um, this year said that they employed the assistance of a an external advisor in finding and securing deals. Now. This is some. This is kind of part, I would say, of a broader trend, and this is certainly how the FT paints it, um, away from the kind of intermediaries that have dominated financial services for the most of the 20th century. So the Financial Times says, and I quote, the ultra-rich are forming a rapidly growing global network and are doing more deals with each other. The ultra-rich are taking mm. back control. Family offices are becoming more sophisticated, uh, increasingly doing deals directly with each other. The role of investment banks is diminishing. Um, so they talk about essentially these guys, these guys don't need, they don't consider that they need banks anymore. So it used to be the case that, you know, they would, to get access to the sort of deals that they wanted, they would go to a bank and the bank would be an intermediary and, yeah. And whatever, but now they just talk to each other, um, and this is sort of this is this is like the Medici's. <laughs> yeah, and so this is occurring as well, right? While there are changes in capital markets more broadly, so we've had this quite pronounced decline over the last ten years in number of firms listed on public markets, and mm. this massive increase in um, the size of private. Markets, which essentially means so if you're listed on if if you raise money in a public market, you go traditionally you'd go through an investment bank that you can directly list, which is mm. also becoming more popular. Um, so I think um, I'm trying to remember who it was. I think Pinterest did a direct listing. Um, right. But so you'd go and list on the stock market, and then anyone can go and buy those shares. They're on the ASX, whatever. Mm -hmm. Private capital raising is you know venture capital, private equity, all yeah. that sort of stuff. So this, that's still quite a small chunk of the global capital markets, but it is a massively growing chunk. I mean, we're talking, uh, you know, rates of, I think the figure I saw was something like 38% a year, right? Like, mm. so there is, you take those three things together, this growth of the family offices, um, their declining use of um, intermediaries, um, the increase, not increase, but a few notable kind of cases of direct listing recently and the decline of public markets, and not decline, but this this kind of interesting trend around private capital markets, and you start seeing you start seeing this picture being painted that is essential that is essentially of a, a, a an elite class that is cutting the tow ropes, right? That is is in a way yeah. disconnecting themselves from the infrastructure that previously kind of constrained their activities, made them transparent and and connected them to the rest of the population in some way, even if it's just through funding banker salaries. Um, they are they seem to be, I mean, increasingly chunking off into a, a world of their own, right? And um, interestingly, like, so they, they do a bit in um, the UBS survey on social and political attitudes, which is well worth a read. But... Yeah. Um, uh, please, please go into it. <laughs> so, fifty-five percent of them think that there's going to be a recession in 2020, and I'm they are to club. actively preparing for that by stockpiling cash, 
and quote unquote looking for um, opportunistic investment opportunity or being ready for opportunistic investment opportunities. Um, and um, two thirds of them globally say that they have a that wealthy families will have a role to play in in mitigating global inequality. That's less than half in the United States, which I think probably reflects the fact that they just don't have the kind of polished rhetoric of their counterparts, perhaps. Yeah. But um, there is, and I mean, I, I don't mean to kind of like, you know, I don't know exactly in aggregate uh, what I think this means yet. I think there's a few different kind of dynamics that might be playing out that are worth investigating. And so, you know, one is like, well, how does this reflect the kind of increasing sort of, does this in, reflect some sort of increasing efficiency of capital allocation to some extent? Um, driven by communication technology in that intermediaries are less becoming less necessary for mm. deal, you know, financial deal making, just as they're kind of um, becoming less necessary in other areas of life where platform economies are popping up. Um, there's also a kind of, although those are a different sort of intermediary, obviously, but um, mm. then I think there's also a question around, you know, is this a... Um, uh, Sorry, what was I going to say? Um, it's a different question. Well, so I think yeah. Sorry, so I think. Mm. So, like, like, if I was like, if I was a libertarian, I was looking at this. Like, I yeah, I would probably be saying like, oh well, this just represents the fact that communication's easier now, right? Like, so people with wealth are just talking to each other. Um, yes and no. Um, so I mean that that is an element of it. It doesn't that doesn't explain. I think that can't explain the totality of these dynamics and the way that they're happening in concert. And it also, mm. um, I think, can't necessarily explain the um, drift away from public markets. So, or just the quantitative rise in family offices. Um, mm. So I think, you know, there, there, you can ask this, this question then around, you know, does it reflect the increasing efficiency of capital allocation um, or and does the consolidation in public markets reflect sort of just an increasing process of monopolisation? Um, how does this process interact then with the socialisation of the means of production um, mm -hmm. through, you know, which I think, you know, has occurred through financialization, right, um, through, you know, the institution rise of institutional investment in the 20th century in public markets essentially means that, you know, all of our money um, mm. is being used as the means of production. We have a socialised means of production just controlled by specific people. So how yeah. does this interact with that? And I wonder if, you know, the view that I sort of have that forms in my head is, well, I wonder if what this represents is these guys going, you know what, I think that all of this is going to go to shit, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm still going to be a CEO or a board member of a big publicly listed company and I'm going to tear the copper pipe out of that fucker. And, yeah. um, but, you know, I'm going to put my own money into this family office and I'm going to do private deals. I'm going to just do deals with my friends, deals with people I have dinner with, you know, and I'm going to start investing in... AI, um, investing in automation, which obviously they do, and mm. I am progressively going to disconnect myself from the rest of the population, from the need for the rest of the population. Because if I know I have that secure stock of resources and if I can 
invest in automation to get it to a point where I don't need human labor to be involved in reproducing my current lifestyle anymore, then I don't need capitalism and I don't need the population. Everyone else in the world can essentially die and I can keep living in this constantly reproducing bubble of elite luxury. Um, and I think that is, you know, that's the ultimate end game for these people, whether or not they would admit to themselves or not. Um, that is and, you know, very, that, like, very dark and does nothing to, uh, to, to get rid of my, um, my you know, uh, cynicism around, <laughs> around, around uh, the direction of global capitalism. Another one of the articles in the FT report was about how, how it was called something like how student debt became the cause celebre. And um, the, it was this article about, oh, lots of billionaires are now um, uh, paying off people's student debt as a form of philanthropy. Maybe you should consider doing that as well. And, I mean, that's, that's what the future looks like. I mean, more than... I mean, the 20th century was this incredibly brief period when the mass of the population were to some, the extent to which our survival was dependent purely on the mercy of those above us was to some extent mm. tempered. Um, mm. And, you know, it, it feels they extreme, are... Like the, like the emperor giving you a... a absolutely, you know, absolutely. And they, they are rolling all of that back. And as soon as automation gets to a point, I mean, one, they're going to be well-protected, in the event of some sort of global economic or climate meltdown or the combination thereof. And two, as soon as they get automation technology developed to the extent that they need to reproduce that bubble for themselves, I mean, they'll, you know, maybe, maybe they won't do it directly, but directly or indirectly, they'll kill us all. Yeah. Oh, I, I think, I mean, the, the, like the, the, the what this, do you say, this, really? <laughs> this, is, um, this reminds me of the, the stuff like that um, about you know I can't remember if it's Musk or Bezos like investing in space stations. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly, like exactly. Space stations. It's like, and it does have that thing of like, why? Why are you doing that? It's like, all part what? of the same pattern. It is all part of the same the same phenomenon. Um, yeah. And you know, like, I, think, I think science fiction has, has always been, I think, like, you know, so much more prescient than we give it credit for, you know, in, in that those kind of, like, images of, you know, Blade Runner is a great example, right, but the, the, that sort of motif of the, you know, the, like, the planetary, the un, yeah, the planetary underclass and the sort of... Um, Elysium. Yeah, Elysium. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, that I was think, a terrible know, movie, but it was but, uh, a terrible movie. But I mean, but that's a tried and true kind of trope, science fiction yeah. trope, right? And I mean, I think science fiction is always kind of like so often is about inequality. Um, yeah. And oh, you know, one, uh, one of the very one of the very first uh, um, uh, movies, uh, one of the very first uh, science fiction movies, uh, Metropolis, was uh, you know literally about the um and literally under the under uh, literally an underground underclass that was uh, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah Snowpiercer is it basically exactly the same I don't know if you've ever seen that it's basically just a complete rip off of Metropolis right like it's almost <laughs> exactly the same pre kind of premise I mean I'm what I I've got uh, I started watching a movie called Prospect which is a 2018 the other day which is essentially about you know, this father and daughter who kind of like, it's very kind of gritty sort of real realist type sci-fi, um, father and daughter who are sort of essentially contract miners, you know, it's like they're, they're in the gig economy for mining um, uh -huh. resources in, in the future world. And I think, and that 
you know, like he's addicted to painkillers and like, you know, they've got this kind of abusive relationship and they fly around in a ship that's falling apart, shooting other, you know, like minors. I mean, that it's just like that's a – it's such a – you know, it's such a clearer picture of the future than I think, you know, people want to believe. Yeah. Well, I, I you know, I, uh, Al, you know, uh, I forget who said it exactly. It was probably someone on Chapo Trap House, but, um, which is a podcast that if you're not listening to, you probably should. Um, the, uh, where they said that, um, that the, that the, U, uh, the US Congress has passed climate legislation. It was, it was the uh, the the tax bill that um, yeah. that gave. Yes, that's, yes, um, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that that's you know that gave um, it just it, it, like a probably a huge boost to these exact kind of firms you're talking about that um, that, massively, uh, massively, yeah, that um that will allow them to build the infrastructure they need privately to to separate themselves. And actually. Do you actually have any idea if this has been a particularly uh, if these sort of firms exist in Australia, or is it, or is it sort of just they do? Yeah, they they do. Um, I don't have Australia specific figures on hand, but um, yeah, they do. I actually saw when I was researching this, the the Fin did a a sort of piece on the same topic quite recently. I would love to know who, like, which families have these, and. Uh, maybe, maybe where they're, maybe where they're, they're headquartered would be uh, yeah. <laughs> some interesting information. I don't know. It's just, you know it's just, just generally nice to know, you know, yeah. where like 10% of Australian GDP is going. It's bleak yeah. stuff. It is. Um, but uh, as we always try and do, I want to end on uh, a not bleak note, um, which uh I think that, like, and, um, and I feel like we always have to go overseas to look for the non-bleak stuff. Um, but um, the the uh, the uprisings in Chile and um, and uh, well, the uprisings in Chile, firstly, just by themselves, uh, and in Lebanon, sorry, and in Lebanon, that's what I was thinking. Of. Um, I think uh, do like re- uh, represent a pretty. Uh, great form of hope, and I do actually want to um, want to uh, speak to someone from Chile about what's going on there. Hopefully, we can have that either as a full episode or as like a mini episode that I just do um, interviewing um, someone from there. That'd um, be awesome. Yeah, um, you know, uh, like some of the stuff that I've seen out of Chile. Uh, you know, my my fa- my favorite slogan. My favorite slogans I've seen about the people protesting are. Um, because uh, it all it all started from a um, or the spark for it was a oh, I, I don't know how well it's been covered in Australia but was a fare increase mm. on the metro um, and as the protest went on um, the the slogan was um, it's not about thirty pesos it's about thirty years no uh, that's so good yeah and the and another and another great one was um, I saw was uh, neoliberal neoliberal neoliberalism was born here and neoliberalism will die here. And I was like, oh god, that's awesome. That is uplifting. There you go. Yeah. So I uh, yeah I I do want to uh, try and speak to um, speak to someone um, about that, but more on that to come. 
Um, and the other thing is that uh, they're heading to a general election. This I don't know how well you count this as good news or bad news, but they're heading to a general election in the UK. And, you know, like, I, our, like, I just, I really want to see our boy Jezza get it. The absolute like, boy. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. Like, it's like... Probably I, I, the I, best developed... And a, one of the best developed leftist platforms going around globally, for sure. I know we, I know we have, uh, I know we have some listeners in the UK, and uh, I know we probably, we, I know for at least one of them, we specifically don't have to uh, tell them to do this. But please go out, campaign, donate, do everything you can to elect Jeremy Corbyn, and get these fucking horrible Tories out of there. Yeah, like, come down, boy. Yeah, he like. I don't want, I, I, you know, this isn't a British politics podcast, so I don't want to get into, like, all the stuff about, you know, these, like, the, the, that stupid anti-Semitism crisis that came up or, you know, that he's, that, oh, he could have been slightly clearer about whatever on Brexit. He, like, he is undoubtedly the best left-wing politician uh, in the West at the moment. <laughs> like, mm, I, sure. I, 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 I'm, like, he's... He's got the the best critique of uh, Western foreign policy. Uh, he's got the most ambitious plans um, for 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 not only for not only uh, bringing a, a whole lot of uh, UK um, assets back under public control, but also but also sharing technology to the third world as part of decolonization to help them um, move from uh, from carbon. Uh, from carbon-heavy ways of producing power to uh, to renewable ones, which, like, like that that is so far from the conversation that we're having in the US or the or Australia that it's like it's it's like I, I can't I can't imagine even Bernie Sanders saying that, um, like let alone fucking Albo, but mm. like and and he you know has come out with that policy that yes as part of as part of uh, the UK elected as the UK's contribution to make sure that we can transfer transition to a um, uh, 100% renewable world. That they will help uh, provide the, provide the technology for this. Not not on a not on a you know we're going to sell it to you basis, but on like we're going to give it to you basis. Mm. Which, you know, um, yeah. Anyway, which is kind of how that how we. I mean, that's. That sort of undoes one of the key ways in which we've continued to maintain and perpetuate colonialism through these kind of technology transfer arrangements. Because I mean, it's you know it's very it doesn't matter if if you're if you're not actually the one who's kind of directly extracting and selling a country's mineral resources, for instance, if you're the one who has to come in to operate the rigs, you know, like yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. it's um and yeah anyway he's. He's uh, he's brilliant, and he needs to be the next prime minister of the UK. Um, and he needs to, and like he needs to help rescue the UK from this horrible cycle of austerity and just the sheer boring banality of Brexit that's just been going on for forever. Um, but yes, if you're in the UK, please, please, please do everything you can um, and donate, volunteer, post online and register everything you can. Amen to that. Yeah. And with that, I think that's, uh, I think that's uh, us done for another week. 
or cool. two weeks in this case. We we'll, we should be back on a more regular schedule in the next little while, but um, but um, uh, for this period, I think that's us done. Cool. Talk soon. All right. Okay. See you later. Bye.